In this week's Grit, we are joined by immersive content and VR expert Zilla Watson, and we talk about her role in running the BBC VR Hub, her background in journalism, and the continued importance of innovation in media spaces. Great, so we're going to jump over to the UK now to speak to Zilla Watson, who is an immersive content expert with a strong background uh, in the BBC and uh, also in journalism and also started out in law. Zilla, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Great. It's great to catch up with you and particularly to talk to you about uh, an area of kind of the creative industries that is A, buzzing at the moment, but B, also a lot of people don't really know about or don't fully understand. So so it'd be great to pick your brains about that. So in in terms of being an immersive content expert, do you want to just for the sake of the audience cover what what your role has been of, of late and the kind of work that you've been doing in VR and so forth. Yeah, well, I led, I very much led the charge at the BBC to understand yeah. how virtual reality could um, be used for the BBC's mission to inform, educate and entertain audiences. So that was initially with news um, to, to see how um, journalism might be transformed by virtual reality, but across all genres, um, ultimately. Right. Um, also looking at AR and other forms of technology. And since I left the BBC, I've also been focused on um, using um, virtual reality and, and XR in live performance. Um, I joined a company called Satori Studio run by Tupac right. here. And that was very much, again, looking at, at, at different ways in which this technology all comes together to allow um, extraordinary experiences. Great. So when, when you're approaching a, a project, because there's such a tradition of approaching traditional media, there's, there's a grammar to it and there's a process to it. When you're approaching a project that utilizes this technology, how, how do you kind of approach it as, as a creatively? Well, I'd, I'd still, because I was trained in journalism, I'd yeah. still start by saying, what is the story? What is the hook? What is the audience going to get out of watching this? Because I still think that provides a discipline that... Yeah. Um, enables you to um, get started. But but the truth is not all stories um, work really well in, in virtual reality. And what we really tried to do at the BBC was understand which ones did. So um, there seems, you know, it's expensive and much more harder to produce than a regular film. So, so my mantra was always, if you can tell it better on TV or radio, um, do that. What virtual reality offers you if you're the audience member is to stand in a place and feel and see and explore what it's like yourself and get this visceral sense of being there it enables you to see things and understand scale um, much mm-hmm. better. so for example when we when we did a series um, called damming the nile we we were able to show the scale of this enormous dam that's being built in um, ethiopia right um, and you could really see that in pr and get a sense of it that you wouldn't have got on on tv um, it really showed that and you know vr and also can allow some interactivity if it's, it's if it's cgi based and um, that's obviously again um, another level up in terms of um, complexity in terms of production but it offers you very cool experiences where again in a bbc one in doctor who you can help the doctor drive the tardis the strange police box teleporter that's used to to travel in that and and did you find because i think one of the things about VR is that the minute you take away this kind of screen grammar of uh, almost like a director saying this is what you're going to see, it seems that it actually kind of lends itself more to thinking in the same way that theatre has to think in terms of that, that that wider experience. Was it much to think about in terms of how audiences operate within a space and, and how they interact with things? Well, I think the theatre connection is really interesting. It's certainly true that um, the the way in which storytelling had evolved in film and television wasn't always the answer for virtual reality. So often, if yeah. you had a problem, like how are you going to get someone, how is somebody going to um, be introduced to a story, um, the best way, and, and this is what I learned from um, Professor Anthony Steed at UCL, was right. to go back to theatre. And, and you wouldn't necessarily do exactly what you do in theatre um, in, in VR, but it enabled you to extrapolate and you'd then come up with a solution that worked in VR. So you kind of had to ignore um, where film had and television had taken us through being able to tell stories through editing and, and go back to a sort of more more theatrical approach to then, then find out what the way in which... Um, in the way in which you could solve that problem in VR. Um, and then there's also the sort of whole immersive theatre um, link with VR. I mean, I, I think... 
and and again, because immersive theatre is about moving people through a space and understanding um, and creating a journey for them there. Again, there's things you can learn from that. I don't think it holds all the answers, though. Um, there's 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 um, traditional theatre, Greek theatre, frankly, um, yeah. provides some of the answers too. It's 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 not just um, immersive walk through theatre. It's it's about thinking differently about how you're going to tell a story and finding ways to solve those problems. And and how did you find? Um, I suppose being at that kind of nexus of technology. And, and very much it's developing and it's emerging as you're doing it, which so you're at the sort of bleeding edge of it. What was that like to sort of deal with the technical side, but also then deal with the creative and, and work with the different teams? Because you were often leading this and having to kind of corral lots of different mindsets. What kind of uh, approach did you have to take there? Well, um, I mean, I think it's really clear that all, all the um, media organisations, news organisations and um, broadcasters who did push forward on VR, it was through having a sort of expert multidisciplinary team who yeah. then explain stuff. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, different areas of um, the BBC had very different ways of working and you're always um, up against that with, with new technology. Yeah. The precision with which you have to give an instruction um, to a developer to make a change is very different from the sort of the, the slightly imprecise terms that are often used by people in TV. Oh, make it make it bolder, make it faster. Um, <laughs> yeah. You need to explain what exactly do you mean by that in a very complex um, 360 animated scene. You need to say, well, what, what are we going to change? What exactly is it that we're going to have to do? So there's, there's all sorts of sort of communication things that you have to work around to just speak different languages and the languages of news and drama are very different let alone the um, language of VR. You obviously started out as a journalist so you, am, am I right in saying that you you trained as a lawyer? Yeah I didn't I, I thought law was going to be very boring so I wanted a more um, interesting interesting life so yes and I wanted to change things and journalism was was going to be my my way to do that. Great so when you started out in journalism what kind of things were you were you doing as a, as a, as a sort of start did you started out at the BBC and then? No I didn't I, I worked for small independent production companies so because I'd done right. law there was a program called Trial and Error which investigated miscarriages of justice and so right. that's obviously a um, good place for me to start but yeah. I was far too loyally um, and not not um understanding enough of the needs to make good TV. So um, I think I was a, a total pain there. But um, I mean, over time, I mean, I worked on a number of um, history and science documentaries for small independents and um, did because I'd also been a political researcher at the House of Commons, I um, I joined the BBC's political documentaries department, making um, very watchable um, films about politics aimed at wider audiences than the, right. the core news programmes. So that's what I did. So it was all about, I mean, ultimately, it was all about explaining difficult things in engaging and and um, as visually exciting a way as, as you could. I mean, that's that's what I was was interested in. Well, that's often the, the, the great skill of a lawyer and speaking as somebody who's trained lawyers in the past it, it's the great skills of, of of lawyers is dealing with very complex issues and 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 having to kind of maneuver through that and sometimes deal with clients sometimes deal with corporations and the skill set of the minutiae of that but then going into journalism and then having to deal with the why did you find that like, having that that mindset from your education and so forth helped you in being a journalist because sometimes people try and sort of just jump into journalism thinking Woodward and Bernstein without thinking through <laughs> through all the others. Yeah, I think so because I think it's two things is one of you is you've got to be brave enough to understand complex things yourself yeah and then you've got to find a way that's that's going to make those engaging to to other people so um one of the programs I worked on in its very early days was a radio it was a radio for a very serious program called more or less which was all about how telling stories about numbers and statistics, which um, initially seemed like this impossible task on radio um, that, you know, you could only tell yeah. stories about numbers with graphics. But by coming up with clever analogies and by great, getting great stories, um, we we um, we began to create a language that enabled us to do that, and um, it was slightly terrifying for me. Some of the maths and things I had to sort of try and get my head around. But I think ultimately it was that sort of approach that then prepared me to um, dive deeper and work with technologists, um, where I did have to understand structures of databases and things. And I don't 
and I couldn't build one, but I could explain it and I could explain it to the people that needed to have their data in it. I, um, for this one I'm talking about, I, I built with, with a, a group of people a new database for a BBC soap opera on radio called The Archers, which has been going on since the <laughs> 1950s. But to do that, you needed to be able to both, um, you know, to communicate both ways. You needed to be able to communicate with writers and the people who were going to be using it and understand their needs, and also with the people who were going to be structuring this data. So it was again, it was a, it was, it was a translation process. It's very similar, I think, to journalism for me. Through the journalism, you that you then went into the R and D hub, and so so. When you approached that, what was the sort of mandate you were given? Because this must have been a time when the BBC was going through a sort of massive overhaul of looking at all the digital was coming, had, had sort of penetrated, but it was all these new technologies were floating around. So that must have been an exciting time. It was an exciting time. And the reason I did it was because all big organisations like that tend to be a bit siloed. And I was excited. I'd been working on various archive projects, but with, with um, I mean, essentially the task was suddenly we were able to get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of radio programmes available online for streaming. So rather than just following the broadcast schedule, they were permanently yeah. available. So it was, how do you find ways to make people find all these amazing programs about things they might be interested in? How do you surface the great content and what do you do? And actually, um, you know, it, it began, became very clear to me that without using some automation and some machine learning and things it was always going to be impossible to um, do that so that's that's ultimately what what drew me initially to R&D because they were doing some really amazing um, research on using things like for, for audio archives using speech to text to create tags that then enabled you to search these vast archives where there was no metadata available and you know, I made I managed to make a program using that. We had I'd been responsible for putting back on the BBC website an enormous archive of programs by a journalist called Alistair Cook, who did a weekly yes. talk on American what was going on in America every week called a letter from America. Again, since the 40s. So it was an extraordinary thing. But the BBC usually kept the scripts and not the recorded programmes. And and then eventually um, they started keeping the programmes if they were about an important event. Right. We, we had very few programmes from the 1970s and we did a call out and an amazing farmer in um, the UK had recorded every single programme from 1973 wow. to at some point in 1984, something when he met his wife that night. <laughs> um, but we were able, they were all on endless cassette tapes, old cassette right. tapes. But then you've got this problem. You've got enormous amounts of, of audio. How do you find the programmes that are going to be interesting? But by using these techniques, I was able to find, for example, the programme after Nixon resigned and the programme which described the famous interview that President Carter did with Playboy through through searching for keywords like that yeah. and, and showed you could you could make a program um, using those and, and we did for Radio Four. Great, and and so this work that you were doing there must now now journalists within day to day operations of the BBC must massively benefit from this work because if you're doing it in R and D and then it gradually all becomes part of the workflow, does, has that sort of, do you see the footprint of that work everywhere now? Yeah, certainly being able to use. Um, for search for archives for, for BBC mm. staff, it's not what it's not, and what I, I suppose my my frustration with the uptake of technology. I mean that yeah. that should be available to everyone really searching, wanting to find programs on the BBC, and it's just always more complicated than you think to take something from a working prototype to mm. ensure that that then is usable by everyone. Just because with organisational priorities often mean that the the day to day getting every single program today out on BBC websites and iPlayer is um, ultimately a far more important priority than being able to search its archives. Right. Yes, but but without the ability to do it, we might not get some of Adam Curtis's. Yeah, and so he's able to use it, which is great. I, I was watching his recent documentary, thinking I would love I would love to sort of have an immersive Adam Curtis experience just to see what that was like. Maybe, <laughs> so. maybe I should talk to him about that. Yeah, but I um, when I got into the VR, just because I was in the right place. Um, really right time and right place because BBC R&D did a partnership with UCL so we were sharing 
a joint lab space with their computer science department. And I saw Great. these guys with these strange black boxes on their heads and um, thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. And at the same time, I'd been to a talk by Noni de la Peña, who's who's the godmother of VR. And I just thought, I, she talked about how VR could transform news. And, and it was really early days. So actually there hadn't been, um, this is before there were any consumer headsets available, but it yeah. sort of, I thought, oh, right, well, um, I better have a look at that. So that's really um, how, how it all started for, for me. It was, it was just serendipitous. And do you, I mean, the thing with VR that it seems to be a constant frustration as, as it kind of, it takes two steps forwards and then stagnates for a bit and then takes two steps forwards. And, and do, do you, how, how do you feel about the sort of current state of VR? Because it, it kind of goes up and down in waves. And at the moment, you kind of hear lots about virtual production, but you don't hear so much about kind of actual content within VR at the moment in, in the mainstream. I was just wondering what your sort of opinions on the the ups and downs of the VR industry are. Well, this is where the the journalist in me yeah. um, means that I, I retain some scepticism about it and always have. Um, it's one of the things we didn't know back in 2015 was whether you could tell convincing stories at all in virtual reality. We knew at that point from all the sort of amazing experiments that had gone on in universities like Stanford, you could create extraordinary experiences. You could stand on the edge of a a pit and feel you're about to fall down and and refuse to walk over a plank of wood over it because you thought you'd fall, even though your brain knows really you won't. So we knew knew about its power and there'd been lots of great experiments in psychology and things that that all demonstrated that. whether anyone really wanted to wear a headset at home for any length of time um, was 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 unknown, and and so back in two thousand fifteen, um, it really was a technology looking for its use cases um, outside of um, lab experiments and and um, you know big companies like Ford who'd used it for for car design and things. And and obviously some of those design things, um, without question, have been enabled through um, consumer headsets now in terms of design firms and things. But it's still, you know, even then it's still expensive. So, um, you know, in, in theory, every single um, building, you, you, you might have a sort of VR version of it to see what it was like before you um, went ahead and built it. But it's, you know, we're, we're not even at that stage now yet. Um, no. on, on the consumer, on the sort of consumer entertainment side, there is obviously because of the success of the the Sony PSVR and also yes. the recent launch of the Quest um, from Oculus. That you know there is a there is a market for VR games, but again, we still don't know how big that will be. Right. And yeah. all the research we did at the BBC, which was ethnographic research in the home, suggested there are lots of issues around adoption. Right. So the danger is. People get VR headsets. They're really excited by them for two weeks. They think it's amazing and they do loads of things. And then it kind of sits on the shelf. And that's that's the sort of stage of VR um, we're probably still at at the moment, even if people buy them, that their sort of daily habit yet or weekly habit that really compels its use at home. Because it, it, I, I, at first, when sort of COVID started to happen, you would you would naturally think that those that have it would, would use that as a kind of escapism. But it didn't seem looking at the trends and stuff it hasn't necessarily had a massive impact but then people that do but it's quite it's obviously quite niche it's still quite niche yeah yeah the trend and then before covid what was exciting was this idea that actually it was working quite well for location-based experiences whether they were the sort of all action dreamscape experiences that sort of disney-esque adventures that i took part in one of those in in california last um early march and they're really yeah. really exciting and they were about 20 dollars um it lasts about half an hour but for to go to that with a group of six friends um was brilliant obviously in in the uk we've had lots of galleries and museums and um other places also starting to explore whether um, um, VR could be a, a, a really strong attraction and theme parks too. But COVID's really um, um, messed that up a bit. Yeah, no, and it, it seems, I mean, I was talking to, to, to another friend recently about like when when things do eventually open and again, which will eventually happen because life has to go on at some point. But will we have lots of kind of empty spaces where retail shops used to be, where 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 certain experience things used to be. But is there a desire of humans to have experiences? And therefore, will we start to see VR and AR start to 
pop up in natural physical spaces rather than just in 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 the home you know sort of mixed media or or, or vr experiences that you can go to 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 to, to experience something, whatever that is. Well, I mean, the, 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 we don't have any um, really confirmed business models yet. That's the stage we're at. Where yeah. yes, we've 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 come a long way in terms. The technology's come a long way in five years. Um, you know, the Quest is a great headset, and that will only get better. I, I, I mean, I I still find headsets pretty uncomfortable and heavy. I yeah. think I think there's still work to be done on design. The content can be really good now. There's, there's, you know, the, <laughs> that's not that's not holding it back. It is, it is about business models and, um, and ultimately whether whether people want to do it and and where they want to do it. Um, so you can sort of see it in a in a work um, setting. You know, there may be times when it's really useful to be able to put on a headset and see something, but it's just. When you come back from work, will people? When, what will make pe- what will make people want to put it on at home? Um, and I don't. That's realistically um, where we are now. Yeah, yeah. And and do you do you think that the area of kind of VR journalism or, or VR documentary making has stilted, or do you think that's got another sort of phase down down the line? Because there seemed to be so much activity uh, a period of time, but then it sort of it has slightly gone quiet. It feels. Um, well, there's still, there's lots being made because people mm. really it's it's an amazing and brilliant challenge as a producer making that sort of thing. Um, but whether the audience has grown for that sort of thing, I think is 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 the the question that we we need to ask. I would suggest it probably hasn't realistically right. because the opportunities to present those sorts of things to people um, in out of home experiences that worked have um, diminished. So, for example, at the BBC, um, one of the big projects that I'm really proud of is we took some of our best content to um, to libraries. So we had a um, we did some trials and then we ran um, a big trial of 175 public libraries in summer 2019. The results were were phenomenally positive right. um, and really positive for the um, journalistic piece we had, which was a three part series on the Congo. Slightly to my ex- against my expectations, that, that came out so strongly. Um, but people um, really enjoyed it, found it really interesting and remembered it. And we did a qualitative um, telephone survey that was run by an agency three months afterwards. And what was extraordinary was people said they remembered standing in Kinshasa Station in, in the Congo, which you just sort of think, well, that's very unusual. You don't normally remember something you watched on television news three no. months ago. So so it obviously had this, this visceral effect and stayed planted in their memory and was very strong. I mean, yes, again, sceptically, there could be a sort of novelty effect that it was one of the first pieces of VR they'd seen. But I still think it it, it testified to its extraordinary power. It's it's about the getting it to people that's the, that's the challenge now. And and no, for sure. And I, th- I think, how do you feel about kind of where the, the producers, where the creators are coming from in, in order to produce in this space? Do you feel there's enough influx and uh, enough awareness of it or do you have to kind of almost train everybody in it from a, another discipline or is it starting to emerge that you've got people that understand how to create in this space? I think there's a fairly good body of people that know how to create in this space. I, I really I don't think that's holding back expansion because it's an exciting thing to create. And that's the other thing is when when people are excited by things, they'll learn new skills really quickly yeah so that they can they can make make um vr and and that's always been the case with it people were willing to do that um because they knew the results were 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 so um compelling and it must have been like when working with journalists as well did did they embrace that openly or i I know some some journalists very reserved foreign reporters love love the idea of because it's doing what they've always tried to do which is through pictures words and sound to take people and give them an understanding of of what it's like and what's going on in a place so so they they and I I know this from the New York Times as well that that the foreign reporters are the ones that got most excited by it actually right it's not so you know it's not going to transform court reporting but for 
on reporting and and giving people an understanding of a country and that's what we that's what we really um pushed on with the two big news series we did damming the nile which was about the um ethiopian renaissance dam and its impact on sudan and egypt and an amazing journey down the nile good things as well you get to go to the sudanese pyramids you get to yeah yeah go uh, balloon ride over the valley of the king so we tried to make it pleasurable as well as um, you know, have very serious points about the story as well, and making make it, make it a, a positive experience overall. And it, it does seem also that that some of these experiences have also had a knock on in terms of kind of web journalism generally. There seems to be so much better work being done um, in in print uh, with 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 additional elements on online i was the the piece you shared the other day from the new yorker is just yeah. a wonderful piece of storytelling and and it seems to have opened up the eyes to journalists that maybe traditionally work in print have you found that at all yeah well that's that's the hope is that when you embark on a new form of storytelling for for a new medium like that that ultimately you take that back to more traditional journalism too that thinking about your audience in a, a different way thinking them it it you know vr lent led itself to um, a more um, informal style of reporting that was more like explaining something to a friend than old style TV reporting where you were standing there and being very important. So um, everything from style to how to construct a story and that you could, that certain bits would benefit from that immersive approach, but other bits might be better in text. And it's lovely to see that all coming together in a piece like the um, New York one um, that you mentioned. Do you have any kind of insight into if, if you're coming into this world as a, a new journalist new new student of like things to think about when you're when you're starting to explore in this area things to consider and and, and embrace I guess well yeah no and I think this is this is um something that I found having left news and then went back yeah. to it, is that my my influences had increased enormously and um, I was looking at things that museums had done and art galleries had done and theatres had done, um, and they were all helping influence the creative decisions I was making. And the problem is in newsrooms often, because the pressures are, are, are very tough, um, that people forget to step outside it and think about the not not just other things that they could be looking at, but to think about the other things their audience is seeing and how that might impact on how to make things engaging and interesting for them. So yes, I think that would be my my bit of advice that though there is a sort of ethics code and there are sort of ways of working that are very much um, a part of news that you you wouldn't necessarily get in other places and I wouldn't want those to go. There there are ways that you can um, reinvent how you tell stories that you can um, take inspiration from other areas um, to stop news getting stale. Yes, and you and you 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 want. Um people to be engaged with these stories and 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 speak about it it's not just about informing it's actually engaging people in the in the democracy and the, and, and the yeah. political view and it doesn't have to just be in pure fact and and, and reportage as you say yeah yeah and especially for when it comes to you know getting this 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 old problem of oh how do we get young people to watch news i mean if you have no idea what other media young people are consuming you you can't understand how to make um news build to them because yes. so it's it's also so it's two things it's one inspiration for storytelling yourself but two it's about audience understanding I think and in in your work particularly in the R&D side and with UCL did you find yourself doing a lot of kind of ethnographic research and looking at how how do people have a relationship with technology and information and entertainment yeah I mean it's always so the problem with the ethnographic research is it's really expensive to do yeah. properly um, but but I was really lucky to work with brilliant um, UX designers who'd who'd come from that route. There's one called Marlene Anderson who'd who'd worked at Samsung before, and she'd yeah. run very big um, ethnographic studies there. And and so that approach was very much embedded through people like her that you have to start with the user and their behaviour and understand yeah. that. So absolutely, it's it's you know and, and sort of fighting against a, a tech first um, approach. 
um, of course, as a journalist, I want to start with the story, which is another another thing. But it, yeah. it's bringing that together, and and that's the thing. If you're doing web journalism and digital journalism, you're um, working on innovation projects. If you don't think about the audience and how to make it easy for them, it's it's not going to work. And what I really again loved about that New York piece is in when people were initially um, combining 360 footage with news text um you yeah. often had complicated arrows you had to click on which no one was going to do but because they've come up with this rather beautiful and fluid scrolling way that moves you yeah. on the footage um it really works well no and it, it, it you 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 feel completely drawn into it when things are natural and i think that that's the beauty of dealing with ux and and, and ui there's so much you can learn about audience experience as well don normal beautiful things work better you know it, it it's and I think as content creator, I traditionally come from a telly background as well. And it wasn't until I worked with UX designers on apps and stuff that I really started to appreciate what because audience to telly to a telly person can just be, oh, it's somebody that's the audience figure, not not yeah, necessarily how. It's really different because, yeah, because of course we use personas in broadcast to sort of help yeah. people think about different things. So there's there's techniques that overlap, but it's it's really experienced people who really understand how to how to do um, get interactions absolutely easy and and with all the I mean this is this is what I was able to bring to the BBC virtual reality as well because I'd, I'd learned the value of designers and what they can offer there for example when we did have interactive pieces um, I was adamant that the interactions had to be so easy that anyone could use it because that's another of the VR problems so I got a VR quest headset controller in front of me it's got all these buttons if you're a gamer it's really easy to grasp after 15 minutes and that's amazing through the tutorial but for people who aren't it's really complicated and so until right, yeah. I, and I know again everyone says oh soon it will all be gestures but they're quite complicated gestures and I I always struggled with the pinch and various gestures that were associated with the early um, hololens and things yeah and and for a lot of people it just makes you feel a bit stupid when you can't do it but actually it's because it's really badly designed or or early R&D that isn't ready yet for people no and I, I think like um I'm, I'm one of those people that sees the potential of it but then when I try the thing as you say it's the early prototypes and and, and so forth that can be problematic I was watching the video for Microsoft Mesh yesterday okay. and thinking oh that looks wonderful but I wonder how 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 close we are to that kind of yeah that kind of arena I mean that's the other thing I guess I learned in R&D that the sort of journalistic um standards that I'd had for reporting things like politics and things are different yeah. for technology reporting, which is mostly um, this sort of utopian idea of technology. And I realized um, to my pain that um, press releases reporting some development of some amazing camera by Sony, once we sort of chased it up, it didn't yet exist. It was um, you know, it was a prototype or whatever. And, and, and so again, I learned to be very, very skeptical until I'd seen things and they'd been tested it was very hard to make a judgment on them but it this is this is this is my frustration that although I'm excited mm. by the possibilities that technology offers the hype so often gets in the way of proper considered exploration of those possibilities you know it's it's often I'm often sort of accosted by people who say oh you know it shouldn't be VR now it's AR AR is the thing and you sort of think well what's that that based on and some of these decisions are obviously based on what VCs are throwing money into but there's their decisions aren't necessarily terribly informed on what really is going to make an impact they've made many mistakes before too so it's um I I would like people to be slightly more technically literate so that you can have better conversations about whether something's going to work or not there are still too many people in big roles in in big organizations who think the technology is something somebody else can worry about and I don't think that's the case anymore no and I, th I think in so many of these these roles you get the I, I tend to sort of call them technical magpies they kind of go oh shiny shiny new thing and 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 I suppose that there are so many people have worried about missing the next big thing that it just becomes a self-fulfilling th th this hype cycle continues at a great pace and it, it it's it actually takes quite a while for these things to plateau out and actually become day-to-day -day useful you know video conferencing has been around for decades and it's only really COVID that's pushed it yeah. to an accepted day-to-day -day kind of existence I guess so it, it's all well and good to be utopian about it but it takes forever to actually embed into day-to-day -day life 
um, when I so I did a report for the um, Reuters Journalism Foundation in 2017 when I interviewed yes. lots of news organisations, and one of the things that came across strongly then was that news organisations hadn't understood the internet fast enough and have been caught up yeah. by that. And so one of the justifications and, and very intelligent justifications some of them made for getting in on VR earlier was was the sort of potential to be part of that and influence it at an early stage. So so I think that that was interesting. It is questionable though with with really early emerging tech like that, whether there any is really any early mover advantage. And if you look at what's happened in the in the news industry, most broadcasters and news organizations have pretty much stopped doing um VR now. Yes. It's a shame because it's really good now. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, and it's 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 not often um, that news organisations in the past have rushed into that. I guess so. No, but the New York Times when they um, launched their, app, yeah. I mean that had instead of people thinking, oh, should we be doing that too? It was just we have to be doing that. The New York Times do it. They must be onto something. We we've got to be experimenting too. So so and and you know big conferences like South by. Um, kind of get lots of people excited about those sorts of things. So again, it's 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 a very brave position to say, actually, we're going to watch and see what happens for a year. We'll keep across it, but we're not going to yeah. throw huge um, resources at it just yet. But you know, it's a hard, I, I I see it's a, a tricky balance to yeah. to maintain. No, no, for sure. And in your recent role, you've been doing a lot more kind of stuff in sort of arts and culture. Yeah, um, and particularly. Uh, I see the rise of virtual production, and I know the term virtual production can mean quite a lot. Um, but you, you, you've been working on projects that involve kind of all, all different kind of mixed methods. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about virtual production? Because it, it, it's a hot topic in COVID time. So I'm, I'm interested in kind of what that brings. Yeah. Again, ask what it means, because it will, depending on the area of production, it will be many things. I mean, yeah. in particular, one of the things I was exploring was use of giant LED screens for filming yeah. with environments created in game engines um, with, with actors filmed um, in front of them. And, and you know, ultimately, the, the what you'd see on your screen as a viewer is no different from a green screen produced no. film. But it's easier to create because you, you've done all the work before. And it's it's much easier for actors to work in that environment where they actually yeah. see where they're um, going to be. So I think that will ultimately, that will transform news in the long term. Yeah. In the shorter term, obviously, the BBC and other big broadcasters already use those green screen studios. The graphics are getting better and better for them than they were a few years ago. But for a journalist um, standing up and speaking when they can actually see the environment behind them, will just create a better atmosphere they won't have to ham it up so much they will feel much more part of it i'm sure it will, it will make for for better tv or digital news so that's that's one thing and then i've also been in terms of arts project i've been an advisor on a a really big project in the uk that um, got research council money um, yeah. which was involved the royal shakespeare company other theater companies orchestras to create a live performance piece using um it was going to be virtual reality and and also Magic Leap. And it was going to premiere last June um, on Midsummer Night in Stratford-Navon, right. where Shakespeare was born. And um, unfortunately, COVID rather um, wrecked that yes. one as well. So that's been completely reconsidered and rethought during COVID and will now be delivered as a, an online performance with an interactive lair where you can be a firefly and take part in it. So that's that's quite ambitious because that's all um, that's all using live mocap and live rendered scenes. And I mean, I suppose the danger with things like that is when you watch it, because we're so used to seeing high quality animation now and things um, won't realise how incredibly impressive it is doing that sort of thing live. But it is. <laughs> Well, no, I, I've actually got a ticket for it, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It, it. It's wonderful for me, living so remotely from 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 London and so forth, to be able to actually now see things live yeah. uh, in this way. I was talking to a, a RSC actor uh, in a previous episode, and he was sort of saying like how how worried everybody is about like what's going to happen to the arts and culture scene, particularly in England with 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 COVID going and 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 so. On. Do you see kind of opportunities there for for arts and culture to move into different spaces other than just what we know is that like 
could they be reimagined doing different things in the, in this kind of space? Oh, without question, holding it back is is just money. Um, it is yeah. This, this I mean, ultimately, we're using for these things. We're using technology that you have on very big budget feature films, and although it will get easier, yeah. it's I I think that's the the biggest challenge is 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 making the technology um cheaper yeah. but that's why it's great the rsc um originally they they had a production of the tempest which had again used a a real-time character for ariel um which was right. by intel and again you know bringing these different techniques into theater as well i suspect not everyone can can do it but i i hope that you know it's 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 great that that we have one theater company able to to bring in that sort of support and and experiment and old and they're very 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 open to share their knowledge and understanding with with other theatres in the UK and the world as well, which is also um, really important, I think, if, if you're not going to be able to give everyone a chance that 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 knowledge and understanding is is openly shared it's it's going to be so important for the the different people coming into the space and i'm thinking of, of the audience that that mainly listens to this podcast they're all people generally who are starting out in the industry uh finding their footing and thinking about what they're going to do what would you sort of say to emerging students who are particularly like want to go into news or or into this immersive storytelling world what kind of things should they be thinking about well i i think it's having a, a really good technical skill set now as well yeah. as having that understanding of of story and things that will really push you forward you've you've got to be able to constantly learn new techniques and ways to do things and work out what's what's going on and you've also got to be hungry for ideas from other people that then you can bring to your work so it's it's for me most of it is about um, a very open mindset towards learning and um, mastering new skills and staying on top of things and not getting exhausted actually because this is (laughs) 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 you'll have to also learn to manage your your time and things because potentially there is so much to learn by the time you've learned unreal and various other programs and stuff and keep up to date with different things you know it's it's hard to stay up up to date with things so so some um you know you're going to have to know what you're really good at and what you sort of can get a, a working knowledge of and then push into the area where you can offer something unique cool and and particularly some of the soft skills needed as well because i'm assuming you're working with people from such different kind of potential backgrounds in terms of what that you know one minute you can be working with a coder next minute you can be working with an artistic director like the you must be working with a much bigger pool of people than sometimes we do in our little silos in in traditional media. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because news was 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 quite at least when I was working in in radio and and TV, it was quite a it was quite hierarchical yeah. in making pools. However good your ideas were when you were a young producer, you could have them <laughs> thrown out like that, and you'd be very sore about it, even though you were just trying to make it interesting for yeah. um, audiences. And and I think we're moving we're moving away from from that you still I still believe that some of that that structure in newsrooms is really important for maintaining journalism ethics and and proper decision making about processes but but of course you're going to have to explain if you're working in a game engine to create something for news you're going to have to be very good at explaining what might create a dilemma in that so yeah you you're going to have to to move and speak to different worlds and deal with different sorts of difficult people and and lovely people too. Great, and the the, the work you do um, in in the Reuters Institute. Uh, what what kind of work as a fellow do you do do with them? That was a fellowship back then. That was a visit. Okay, fellow. sorry. I was there writing a report on virtual reality and news and really doing a international take on where it was going when it was at its absolute hype moment and and what what was that like kind of doing the research on that like did you have to kind of go all over and, no, and get brilliant. insights from it? yeah no that was the brilliant bit was was going and speaking to people at the new york times and um going to germany and and seeing all this creativity and all this thinking and trying to sort of piece together a sort of bigger picture of of what the possibilities were but also the challenges and the challenges were all around future business models I, right. I think and you know it was also interesting that a lot of some of those early and really interesting news VR projects 
were sponsored by tech platforms. And I think that was another interesting thing that people weren't really aware of before, the impact that funding from Google and Samson and other platforms was 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 actually having on those those projects that was that was why they were that's why they were being done and is, is that a sort of future dilemma that we, we we don't know where we're at with at the moment is this the role of the tech platforms with news and publishing because it all seems to be coming to a bit of a head at the moment I think it's a huge dilemma that we need to sit back and and think about and and VR was an interesting prism because ultimately yeah. VR to get it to an audience had to be published by the Oculus as an Oculus app and that, that means ultimately your syndicated content that is um, in a system that is overseen by by Oculus and you have very little control over how an audience gets to it. Um, I mean, that presents all sorts of problems from promotion and how anyone will ever find it through to, you know, sort of unfortunate juxtaposition of your content against something that is really inappropriate next to it, all those sorts of things. They're not new problems. They're all the same problems that we've had with news on the web and news that's been syndicated to other platforms. And, you know, there was a danger with the excitement of VR that no one was thinking, hey but hang on a minute (laughs) isn't that a bit odd if all our our content is essentially being mediated through another platform where where does this leave us and so so I think there were some questions there that ultimately need to be answered and initially when I was working in VR there were more players there were Samson was there now really um, Oculus owned by Facebook is is the main show in town and you have to have a Facebook login to use your yeah. Oculus headset. So it's it's something that people need to, to think about more and see technology in the round. It's not just about a piece of kit that does something exciting. Um, the, the piece of kit involves software that means you have to have an, a, a Facebook login, which means all your content is mediated through them. And you just need to sort of unpick all these different things for news organizations before they make decisions about where this content goes. No, for sure. Because I, th- I think it was massively overlooked with the as platforms got more and more pervasive in, into our society, that probably the majority of the public don't even recognize it as a platform rather than like for them it's a source of information so for them it's almost like a publisher but actually the very raison d'etre of these platforms is that they get to not call themselves publishers and therefore yeah kind of absolve themselves of any of those issues and it it seems with the clashes in australia and so forth and, and india we're starting to see this kind of what is a platform what is a publisher where does news fit into that and how do, how do people get their information and it seems to be a real difficult one for everyone to wrestle with and, and what's the business model obviously as well yeah and what's the business model for a news organization so ultimately i suppose one of the things i unpicked through that report was that mm. vr should be seen as a subset of the issues facing all internet news about how you monetize it um, I mean, things have moved on since I wrote it because the New York Times' paywall has proved yeah. a successful model. But at that time, that that hadn't really been proven. So you know, in, it was a it was a difficult a difficult moment, and it remains for many um, news organisations how how to monetize. And and obviously, the the BBC is is a rapidly changing place. Any predictions on its future in the next ten years? Because it seems to be sort of taking a strange strange turns no I, I can't really um, predict its future other than that we have no. just seen the growth you know significant growth in the importance of news in terms of its main value globally and that's just continued to grow and yeah. grow in power do, do, could you ever see um bits of the bbc being more widely available outside of the uk than like it's always my frustration as an ex-brit um not to have access to iplayer and just wondering like whether that will ever evolve into subscription based elsewhere in the world other than the UK and 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 just sort of the expand because the BBC always seemed very good at the idea of the BBC brand as an export but currently you can't sort of get it that easily other than the world service it's always more complicated these things because they're always so tied up with rights and the yes. that have been negotiated for past programs as well as as current ones so it's the idea is is um one that i don't think anyone would disagree with it is just the practicalities of sorting through different rights for different territories and things like that always end up being incredibly 
um, difficult to work through. That's, yes. the, that's the other thing that, that everyone's got to remember about innovation is, is it's boring things like it's not just business models that can wreck it or audience habits. Rights is the other thing that can often kill great ideas very quickly. <laughs> no, for sure. And it, it feels like that almost needs to be a major innovation in copyright law internationally <laughs> that, yeah. that is kind of there are there are aspects where the internet is breaking the very premise of co what copyright was based on and yeah. nobody's come up with a decent model to to replace it it seems very archaic for what it actually was intended to to, to do yeah so we could go right back to the, the 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 legal sphere there and 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 ask lawyers to come up with better innovations in terms of legal <laughs> legal design well, and then get actors and writers to agree to them but it's you know yeah. it's, it's it is it's interesting you mentioned the legal side because i think another thing that people that that i've discovered that people forget about um, mm. innovation is it does need good lawyers as well you're yes. creating contracts with for things you don't really quite understand, or at least lawyers don't. And so you need lawyers who are going to be good about taking risks, who are going to be sit, sit and listen to someone like me explaining patiently <laughs> about what we need the contract to achieve. And with something like VR, I mean, in, in the past, there was quite a sort of strict division in terms of lawyers and big organisations like the BBC between technology audience lawyers who would deal with software and, um, you know, TV lawyers who would obviously deal with big productions. And bringing that together was another uh, a VR challenge. And um, actually, one of the projects we did was the, the first big, it was a co-production with Arte and various other people. It was the first digital co-pro the BBC had ever had. Wow. Because it was, again, it was that that understanding of the sort of legal risk and working out how to do that that had previously been a challenge um so so you need good lawyers you need you need a different a slightly different approach perhaps to hr as well to bring the right people in at the right time for these these right. of, of jobs whereas traditional newsrooms people sort of had jobs permanent jobs and were less used to bringing freelancers in for those sorts of things right. so it's it's you know it's it's far more for organizations doing that sort of innovation there's far more to it than than you think initially in terms of what will make it work yes and it, it is all of those pragmatic logistics people thing it's not just just the tech that drives this as you say it, it's and it's quite often when you're pioneering uh, in this space, it is a bit like the, the the frontier, and everybody break. You know, if you look at the the birth of Silicon Valley, most of it is stolen from other stuff. And <laughs> yeah, you see, the thing is, that innovation within a big, um, well-respected public organisation like the BBC, you can't. There's sort of things you can do no. with startups. You couldn't do. I mean, you have no. to pay. Of course, it's right. The BBC pays writers properly, and yeah. um, it should continue to do though, and not drop rates because it's a new thing. So, so there's things like that that just add slightly different parameters on what you can do. No, but it's, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I always consider iPlayer to be one of the things that really pushed streaming and and was way ahead of the curve on a lot of people and it, it kind of now feels like it gets slightly overlooked iPlayer's role in people accepting kind of video over the web because it was a lot lot further ahead than any of the streaming platforms it was an amazing achievement and they did also work through the right issues to be able to allow programs yeah. to be there for we it was it was an incredible achievement iplayer and so yes the bbc's often been at the forefront of of so so many things and it, it doesn't always get the recognition for that that it deserves. I'm conscious that we're we're hitting the hour mark, and I'm so so thankful for your time. It's been really really good. If you were if you were giving two tips to to the people uh, listening to this about setting out, what 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 two things would you give them in terms of like attitude and mindset stepping into the into the the wonderful world of kind of uh, media nowadays? Oh well, the, the attitude is to keep consuming as much as you you can. You that's how you learn have write in a little notebook things you've watched what you like whether it's 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 um, tv dramas whether it's news reports and really hone your critical skills so you understand what sort of things yeah. you want to do in your approach and and the mindset thing is is being willing to continually learn continually question keep reinventing yourself and that's certainly what i've tried to do great thank you so much for your time zilla it's been wonderful talking to you and uh, thank you ever so much for your time thank you it's been a delight better myself and i proved it i know the industry ruthless i'm really a threat of nuisance the 
Chevy and drop it, it's ruthless. Think I'm the one and I proved it. I know the industry foolish. Think we're seeing the movies. It really ain't dropped out of cool. Look at me struggle, I'm right on the bus.